All right, welcome to a 2020 edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. We are in the new decade. That is a good thing. I don't believe in goals. We're going to talk about that. Maybe David will have some insight on that as well. Hanging out here with the, the man himself, Mr. 2020, Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? I am great. I am great. Thanks for having us here. Good We're excited. To see you. Very, very excited to kick off uh, a decade here. The 2020s. So these are we are officially in the Roaring Twenties once again, and oh, that's uh, right. it is the Roaring Twenties. Exactly. I didn't know what to call the the tens. I guess that would have been the teens, right? Except not all the tens are the teens. So I'm never <laughs> sure what to call that decade, and uh, no clue what to call the zeros. So at least now we know what to call this thing, and this is the uh, the decade of the the twenties, which is awesome. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting. So a lot of people talk about goals, you know, and like start of the year they have these these big goals for the year and I, and I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to get this done and I'm going to da, 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 right and then it's like you know my goal is I want to be healthy I want to lose weight I want to become an Olympic level athlete like David Finkel who'll be joining us here in a second and that's uh, on a whole other level there to talk about that but you know it's like you go to the gym and then it's January and then by July right or June or March or whatever it is the, the gyms are empty again I don't even think it lasts that long. Doesn't even last that long, right? So, so goals to me never work. I'm not a goal. I'm not a goal guy. I don't like goals. Um, I'm I'm more about themes. I like themes. So, like for me, and I, and I like themes on a longer on a longer term. Yeah, just the the year long thing. I mean, what is the expression? You can accomplish a lot more in ten years than you ever thought you could, and a lot less in a year. I don't know. Whatever Bill Gates or somebody smarter than me once said. I think Tony it's, said. They overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in 10. There you go. See, I knew somebody would be smart enough to actually remember that quote. So, so, the, so the theme for me for the decade, I've got two themes. So one theme, and, uh, and again, we'll bring David on here in a second. David will appreciate this one. So one theme is, uh, is residual income. So one thing, is, and again, theme, right? So one theme for the decade is residual income. Yeah, what does that mean? Obviously, it means income just rolls in without you having to to work for it on on the daily, right? So, and we'll talk about that perhaps. Uh, and then the second theme uh, theme is automation, and really being able to leverage the power of technology to do things that are redundant tasks, so to speak, that could easily be handled by AI robots, et cetera, whatever it might be. So, those are my two themes for the decade, and the idea is. Am I moving closer to bringing that theme to fruition based on the actions that I'm taking, or am I moving farther away from it? So it's just a really, it's just a, a really easy litmus test, so to speak, that I can run in my mind where it's like, so this activity, does it move me closer to my goal of generating residual income? You just said goal. Go, I did, right? So, yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> so does it get me closer to fulfilling my theme of generating residual income? Uh, or, you know, or is this really leveraging the power of automation? So interesting. Uh, did you think at all about 2020 or the decade or are, are you, cause it's an interesting, very, I mean, come on. I'm, I just turned 50. Well, I just, I like the whole idea of hindsight's 2020. And so, Ooh, you know, are you at the nice. end of this year, are you supposed to like, are we supposed to be looking right now and everything's clear from the past or mm. is it the end of this year? So I don't know. I'm like you though. I like, I like, I don't like goals in that you're only looking out at it and missing the now. Yeah. But I do like them from the idea of having something measurable. So when you are doing that day to day, you know, it's easier to say, am I getting closer to that if you had a specific goal there? But yeah, let's let's bring Dave on. Yeah. So uh, so fortunate to be joined here on our first episode of Beyond Eight Figures in 2020 by David Finkel. And uh, and super excited to have you on here, man. Let's um, let, let's do this first and foremost. I just want to give you an opportunity, of course, to, to say hello and then right out of the gate. Uh, just share how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures, whether you exited from a company for more than $10 million or you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million annually, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, David Finkel, welcome, man. Really, uh, really glad to have you kick off the decade here with us. Appreciate That's it. That's great. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here, Steve, Richie. It's fantastic. I love what you guys are saying. 
I have a little bit of a different take on goals. Maybe sure. it's my, my, my past experiences. We'll get into that, but it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, so how do you meet the criteria for, uh, for beyond eight figures so that uh, our folks can get a better understanding of who you are? Sure. So I, I built more than one business that has had more than that in revenue and valuations from that part of it. I did my first company flopped, <laughs> mm. put my life savings, 3,200 bucks into it. And about 11 months later, I was out of business. My second business though, I started in 1997. I ended up exiting and selling in 2005. And that was a company that we took from zero to just a little bit over seven and a half million in sales had a valuation at the time of the exit, somewhere around about $15, $16 million, depending on the multiple of the EBITDA. Mm -hmm. Nice, man. And I've built other companies since then, too. Yeah, and and a prolific author uh, as well. I mean, you've got uh, just, and really, talk about a theme. There really does seem to be a theme with with a lot of, uh, of what you've put pen to paper on. And so, you're, you've got a book that's coming out now, or at least very soon, right? Called the Freedom Formula. And then you've got a number, you're right there. It is right there. Is it, so is that active? Is that out? Or is are we looking at a pre? Cause it is out now, right now for, yeah, two months now. So the Freedom Formula came out about two months ago. And Good. yeah, you said something about the theme of PRI, passive residual income. And I just, I, I want to just comment two things with it. So you know, a lot of our business coaching clients sell their companies. And what happens is you, you go from a place where you have a business that's generating half a million to maybe four, five, six, seven million a year in profit. But then you go and you sell it for this great big lump sum. And I've seen this pattern and I just want to put it out there to your listeners because I want them to avoid it. It happened to me. I sold my company. I got a great big wire transfer. And then I kind of panicked a little bit. Um, I, I no longer had cash flow coming in. I, I was used to having in you know seven figures a year of profit coming in. And then all of a sudden I just have a lump sum. And so I quickly panicked and started to invest this in silly ways. I did that in 2006. If you can imagine, most of what I put into real estate 2006, mm-hmm. probably not what you would have chosen at that time. And so what I've learned for me is that one of the things people forget about when they sell their company is, you know, how, how am I going to get cash flow? Because I, I don't care how big the lump sum is. I've seen people with lump sums of 10 million people with 100 million people with 500 million. There's still a little bit of concern around that if they're not getting some form of cash flow. And I, I tell a lot of my clients saying, look, if someone offered you a three-time multiple, why would you sell? What if you would just build the business to be owner-independent? Why wouldn't you just hold on to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might work five, 10 hours a week in it, but you get all the cash flow from it, and it's still growing at 15, 20, 25% compounded annually. You can't do that somewhere else. So for your listeners here, oftentimes we think the exit is to sell, and, and that makes sense sometimes. I had a client who's just turned 52 who just sold his company mm-hmm. for eight figures. It made sense for him. But there are other people, it makes more sense to actually have your exit be to step out of the day-to-day active management of the company and own it more passively. Mm-hmm. And I just want to kind of call that to their attention. I have a quick question on that. Is, um, do you think it was more of a mental mindset? Because I'm thinking to myself, man, if I had $500 million sitting there, like I'm not too concerned with more cash flow, but I haven't built my lifestyle up to... Sure. having that is it is it really more because they've built their lifestyle it's up both. to that or it's both that plus it's 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 here's the thing so here's the pattern and and you see this for the top probably 5% uh, in the US at least the pattern is this it's it's the the goal for most people is i want to build this nest egg and i have this nest egg that i'm going to kind of leave off of that over time and i want to basically die before i run out of money the most successful the 0.1% the top 0.1% you see an interesting pattern. So for everyone else in retirement, their net worth starts to decline in retirement. In other words, they're eating some of that nest egg every month. Mm-hmm. But for the top 0.1%, their net worth actually increases in retirement. And that's the distinction. So if I see that, let's say my net worth was $50 million and next year it's now $60 million and I lived off of the, the, you know, the income from what I have, I'm not going to be nervous or not. But if I saw that my, my, my stuff went from 50 to 47 million, in the back of my head, I don't care what the number is. I've watched this. I've talked with people about it. I've experienced it. It still feels anxiety provoking mm-hmm. if I don't have that net worth growing and still have some cash flow coming in. And that's a different matter. It's a whole different problem than growing the company, growing your wealth independent of that. But since we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to give folks an understanding of, and, and, there, there's no doubt from uh, you know from a, a writing standpoint in terms of putting books out 
there's so much that people can learn from you and you you now have the you know the Maui mastermind that you've been doing and, and coaching people and so on and so forth but let's let's talk about the actual uh, brass tacks like what gives you the ability to do what you do through the mastermind and the coaching that you now do in terms of the businesses that you've built so let's 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 take the example of whichever the entrepreneurial endeavors um, that you want to focus on. We, we, let, if we could just pick apart one of those that you were able to grow, uh, let, let's let's do that and use that okay. as a case study with which to we'll then... We'll use a, me- a company called Mentor Financial. So it was a coaching business that I had that specifically was for real estate investors. And you know, most people who coach, they might build a business that has 10 or 50 clients. And we left at our heyday, we had roughly 2,000 clients a year that were coming through. We were training about 10,000 investors a year. We were doing a couple hundred houses a year, myself, my partner, and the other people we had partnered up with. Um, the business was generating about three, three and a half million of profit. Um, no debt, no outside investors, just the two of us. Mm. And so that, uh, and when you say 200 houses, you mean uh, buying and flipping, or, or was this a buy and a hold, or what both. was it? Was both. Both. We, yeah, we, we, we tended not to flip too much. Our preference was to hold. Uh, mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, better for accumulation. We didn't need the cash flow to, to have from reselling a property. Mm-hmm. But it was determined a lot by the partners we had involved. A lot of the partners we had wanted to get the quick money. So, hey, you turn around and you sell the property quickly and you might make 20000 You hang on to it for two or three or four years, you might make 70000 depending mm-hmm. on the, the deal. So, so just so I'm clear, you said you said there were no partners, but there were partners. I'm just clear, like in the core the- business, the training business. So the real estate that we own was actually associated an affiliated company that we would partner up with a lot of our clients. Okay. The core business was just my partner. I owned it. The other business we would do deals 50 50. Sometimes we put up the cash. Sometimes it didn't need cash. Other times we we helped them by putting our balance sheet up to get a loan. It de- depended on the deal. Mm-hmm. And so. This was in Hawaii, or did you, or where did where did most of the, where did most of this stuff take place? Well, yeah, almost all continental U.S. So I, I lived at the time in San Diego. So the the Maui connection was we did, and for 17 years now we've been doing an annual conference for our top you know two percent clients mm-hmm. out there in Maui every year. Um, but back then, this is before there was even a Maui mastermind. This started way back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Gotcha. And we'll actually come full circle here because my understanding is at one point, you you actually did some work and, and did some broadcasting out of the studio, no? I did. I, Peter and I, had my, my former partner, had one of the earliest shows. We were doing a thing called Real Estate Radio. I had about 20,000, 30,000 monthly listeners, and it was probably... Before there was such a thing as a podcast, there was literally it was a radio program done That's live, awesome. and you, yeah, it was a long, long time ago, 20, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, out of these same studio, although a different location, but the same general. That's yeah. that's fun. So, um, so to that end, in terms of the work that you were doing here, take us through the the, the because where a lot of people get in, and the focus of the show is start, scale, exit, right? So where a lot of people get stuck is just in that that starting piece like they have this idea but they don't really know how to then bring that idea to fruition so can you take us all the way back to the embryonic stages of when you were thinking about maybe doing something that ended up becoming this mentor financial and so on and and how you got that first deal done how you got you know just that initial stage of liftoff so i I was 26 years old when I met my, my business partner, who was 10 years older, his name's Peter, you know, great guy. And he had done a lot of real estate, a lot being probably 30 or 40 deals by the time I met him. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had played sport. I was training to play in the Olympics, got hurt with an injury, grew a tumor in my hip that knocked me out of Atlanta from playing there. And so in 1997, he asked me if I wanted to come and be a partner. I told him, I said, well, I don't know anything about real estate. He said, it's fine. I'll do the real estate part. You help with all the operational and the marketing parts. And so within about six or seven months of doing that together, first of all, the, the number one hurdle people have when they want to, to get started is literally they, they think they have to figure it all out. I, I've worked with probably 20, 30,000 different companies over the last 25 years. And I will tell you that 90 plus percent of them, their startup is not at all what the business turned out to be. They thought it would be one thing, and then somewhere along the line, it became different. But the only way you know, it's my favorite quote, you make the path by walking, hmm. right? The only way we, we're going to know and figure this thing out is I've got to be in motion. If, 
the people who try to overthink this before they launch, they'll never launch. And as a result, they'll never fail, but they'll never succeed either. So you've got to get yourself into action. Number two with that, I would say early on for us is we had a lot of experiences where we would partner up with some other people doing real estate workshops and kind of come in behind them and do some events we thought jointly. Well, we were ripped off on multiple occasions from people. And, you know, that could have stopped us, but it didn't. We learned a lot. I mean, it was just give us a, give us an example of that though, because like uh, part of what we do here is is tell cautionary tales. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Sure. So we want to help. Sure. We want to help people avoid. I won't say a name because I don't want to be. You know, I, I try not to speak ill of anybody. But there was a particular yeah. seminar company out there that's now probably a you know eighty to a hundred million dollar a year company. They wouldn't be based in San Diego, would they? Um, I don't know where they're based anymore. I, okay. I'm out of that world completely. But <laughs> yes. so that, that we came in and said we'll do we'll we'll do a back end workshop. They would do it one week. We would come in the next week and do a an event, and we would sell a, a training workshop for real estate, and we would split the profit 50-50. Now, they collected all the money, and people showed up to our event, but none of the money that was collected showed up to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they kept all that, and after we did that you know, for three events that were selling into one of our workshops, we, we did the event because we had made a, a promise to people. So we ate the cost, which was painful back then because we didn't have any of the real revenue. Um, we did the event and that was the start of the business. We could have said, oh, we can't do it. But had we done that, number one, reputationally, that would have hurt. But number two, we would have probably gotten stalled in the business. So, you know, we ate it. It was probably ten or $15,000. It wasn't a huge amount of money. But back then, that was a lot. Yeah, um, sure. So that was that was an example of where we made mistakes. Other mistakes we did was so, we, we so oh, t- time out. And so in hindsight, what would you have done differently? Oh, for sure. I would have had a, a written contract between the two of us. I would have made sure that we were holding the money if we could have. But if we couldn't have, then I would have made sure that there was some clear place with an accounting function. They they basically said, oh, we, we've deducted this amount of money for the cost for the event. But we were the one paying for the cost. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, they, they they basically played a little bit of uh, fast and loose with the accounting. And, yeah. and ideally, what would have happened was we would have had a written contract. Ideally, what would have happened is we would have held the money ourselves since we're doing it, or at least had them pay out along the way much sooner than waiting two or three months later to pay out our portion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not totally get that. Okay. So, so continue down that path. Oh, Richard, yeah, please. Well, I was going to say this was – it, it was interesting what you're talking about right here because it very much covers what we were talking about in the very beginning about goals. And you were saying walk the path. Like sometimes, you know, trying to think what exactly that thing looks like at the end literally is paralyzing and would keep people from going. That's right. And, and, and you're literally showing us firsthand right here in this example that it's like there's – you didn't know any of that. Like in – even the person who's hearing this for the first time right now, thinking about the contract, if they worry about that stuff too much, they're going to get paralyzed still, even mm-hmm. though they get some good information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that once you launch, the second biggest pitfall I see is people undervalue themselves. And so what happens is I, I, I'll give an example. I have a neighbor who left public um, government to open up a consultancy. And she said she was going to charge X dollars per hour. And I said, whatever your price is, add 30% to it right off the top and you'll still be low. How do I know this? Because I see the ramifications. We don't work with startups anymore, but we work with a lot of companies that are in that middle owner reliance stage or just starting to fast scale. And their pricing was set five, 10 years prior, and they've increased it in small little percentages, but almost uniformly, they give a really premium service or a premium product, but they still price it to be the lowest price in the marketplace or toward the low end. Mm. And it's, it's, it's deadly. Mm-hmm. So the second thing I would tell people is have the confidence to price. If you're, if you're producing a premium service or a premium product, don't try to be the, the highest value quality and the cheapest. That's a, that's a death knell. That's mm-hmm. a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it is interesting. Uh, and first of all, kudos for even, uh, let me just take two steps back. I mean, the discipline that it might, that it must take to be able to, to get yourself in a, even, even, even in the conversation of competing in the Olympics. I mean, that, uh, what was that sport by the way? Yeah, I played field hockey. I was in the U S national team for about eight years, captain for about two. And, uh, we were going to play in Atlanta. My teammates did. Yeah. I, I had a tumor so it didn't work out but i appreciate that that was a long time ago that yeah. was back in 90 96 is when i 95 i retired um yes and no i mean it, it relates from the standpoint of if you if if you look at what you're doing now 
in, in so far as how you're leading a team and how you are enrolling people into your vision, whether it's the Maui Mastermind or otherwise, or your clients, et cetera. Take us through what, in, in hindsight now, what you think you learned on that field that has really impacted the way that you do business and help your clients today. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll share an embarrassing one. So we Great. were playing in the wor- world university games and I think it was 91, 1991. So we were in Sheffield, England playing, um, it was a 16 nation t- tournament for us. And I remember England, horrible weather. I was the captain of that particular team. I said something to the coach about, Oh gosh, we should have the you know, umbrellas on the sideline. And then we, we lost to Germany four to one afterwards. And my coach just ripped me a new one. He just basically said, Australian guy, bloody Finkel, you know, how you and your, I won't say the word umbrellas. Mm. And he was right. Like what the, what in the world was I thinking about worrying about the, the sideline stuff? I should have been focused on the play and, and in business, I watch it as a business owner. We, we will either have pet projects that drain resources or we'll be focused on stuff that just doesn't matter that much. And, and, and what we'll do is we'll underinvest in things that matter a heck of a lot. I, I was talking with Kim who runs our marketing for Maui Mastermind. And she does a great job. She does all this volume of work. And I said, Kim, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm thrilled with the volume that you do. As a matter of fact, I want you to do a little bit less. But the things that are your highest priorities, I want them to get more of your best attention so you mm-hmm. do them even better. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think uh, back then, the, some of those lessons I learned, you know, don't worry about the friggin' umbrellas. Worry about the things that actually matter. Those fewer, better things is what we talk about in the freedom formula those few things that matter most. And what you can tell when someone's growing as a business owner, he or she is doing less, but the less that they do matters a heck of a lot more. Mm-hmm. Having a to-do list that goes on for 10 pages is a sign that you're actually not a very good business owner. Yeah. You're not. You're doing way too much low-value crap. You know, and it's interesting, right? Because as to get to the point where you're the captain of the team and at that, that level, you've probably got a, a tremendous eye for talent knowing, you know, this, this person is going to be an awesome player in this position. And this player, I mean, he's, he's good enough to be on this field, but on the scale of one to 10, if, you know, if we got to be at all, if everybody's at a 10 to be at an Olympic level caliber athlete, right? Like this, this, this guy's great, but he's an eight, you know what I mean? So how does that play into what you do now in terms of looking at opportunities? Right. Yeah. Because when you look at opportunities, even in terms of clients, and let's be honest here, you know that everybody who comes into the Maui Mastermind, everybody who comes in and says, you know, hey, we'd love for you to coach us. We'd love for you to help our business grow. How do you reconcile the fact that you probably instinctually know mm, these guys are good, but they're never going to be great no matter what they do? And those guys are good, but they're never going to be great. But yet, you have a business to run. It's a numbers game. You have a certain amount of revenue, a certain amount of lifestyle that you want to continue to, to, you know, to live into. How do you reconcile the two knowing that, just same thing with the players, like that guy's really good, but he's never going to be you know, great. How do you look at that in terms of your clients and the people who come into the mastermind? In terms of coaching clients, I'll, I'll answer it two ways. One for us and then one for anyone who's listening. So for us... I'm not going to make that judge or that determination. What, what I'm going to ask myself is, is this a somebody who's going to benefit from what we do? I, I've learned that, like, for example, I'll speak to myself. I used to be really ambitious. You know, I had ambitions that I wanted to build, you know, 10-figure companies, and I wanted to, to be having all these goals. And what I've found for me, especially post-having kids, so my, my youngest kid is seven, uh, Joshua. My two olders are about to turn 11. I'm about to turn 50 as well, just like, like mm-hmm. you said, see for yourself. So my ambitions are a lot different than they once upon a time were. And and because of that, what I've learned is I have goals, but I don't get caught up if I achieve the goal this year, or if it takes me three years longer, right? That's okay. Mm -hmm. So I've got clients who are like, for example, I've got an Olympic level um, person who actually got a silver medal in the Olympics on the sailing team, the U S national sailing team. And we matched him up with our most ambitious coach. Why? Because this guy wants us to kick him in his rear. And if we say do X and Y, He'll do X plus three, Y plus three, and get it done. And, and you can see his growth is extraordinary. Most clients aren't going to be that way. And what I've learned is they get to control the pace and their time. We need to help direct and guide them. But, but I shouldn't judge them about 
if they want to go fast or not fast. I've got clients, it's not about growth for them. What they really want is to mature the business so it's less reliant, so they can do things like actually take vacations mm -hmm. and work 30, 40 hours a week versus 80 hours a week. So I'm not going to determine what their goal should be. So I guess what I'm getting at is, about that. Okay. I guess what I'm getting at is how, how at this point do you discern between where the real opportunities are and where they aren't? Got it. So I'm going to give you a tool. It's a fantastic tool. We, it's probably my favorite one. Clients love it. It's called the sweet spot analysis. And Perfect. so those that yeah. want to, those that want to get the, the actual forms for it at freedomtoolkit.com, they can actually download a worksheet for it. But sure. So here's how it works. You, you take, like, for example, your big opportunity. Let's say your biggest opportunity is to go into a new marketplace or you're trying to decide which product or service line to keep. The sweet spot analysis says you brainstorm all the different options that you have, at least 10, ideally as many as 15 to 20. And then I put each of my answers through two filters. The first is a low-hanging fruit filter. The second is a home run filter. So a low-hanging fruit says, is this easy to do, high likelihood of working? So... Is idea one easy to do, high likelihood of working? So, if it is, I check off the box for low-hanging fruit. And, and to that end, though, how do you – I mean, the high likelihood of working, I could see you could get data. You could, you know, do some test runs. I mean, whatever, right? But but, uh, but but how do you determine easy to do? Like what – because nothing's easy to do per se. Sure. So easy to do would be – here's the difference. So, for example um, – can I just go ahead and spend some money and buy some ads that I know are high degree of going to work because I've done it in the past? Or am I going to have to go into a completely new area that I've got no experience at and figure this out? Mm. Um, intuition says if someone else has done it and I can copy, model, or hire that skill, talent, or ability, or I've already done it on a smaller scale, I'm just growing the investment, that's probably low-hanging fruit. I can look at how hard in terms of effort, how many hours is it going to take? The second filter is the home run filter. If it works will it produce a big result? And the key is, as I go through and I don't ask, is this a low-hanging fruit? Is this a home run? I ask of every item, is this a low-hanging fruit? Is this a low-hanging fruit? I go down the entire list with that one filter, stop. Go down through that entire list with the second filter, is this a home run? Mm -hmm. And those things that are both low-hanging and home runs, those are your sweet spots. Because by definition, high likelihood of working, easy to do, and big impact if it works. And so what yeah. it does is it takes my 12 ideas and turns it into two or three. And any of those two or three are probably very good ideas. Yeah, interesting. Can we um, – so we, we are in the process right now uh, of launching Podcast Magazine. And it was, uh, it was an idea that came to me several months ago, not really that long ago, and, and started coming to pass pretty, pretty quickly when I realized, geez, there, there is no magazine out there that's kind of Sports Illustrated people like, you know, that really focuses on podcast fans and going into podcast, podcast culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I wonder yeah. how, if you were coaching us, how would you have run that then through this sort of gamut? Because for, for me, I just know in my gut it's something that needs to be done. But I, And you talk about walking the path, right? I mean, this was what you said earlier. You just you figure it out by walking the path. I don't have a clue like i'm not even thinking you don't have a goal i don't have a goal right i just know <laughs> well, it no, no, let's go back here for a second. let's pretend you're my client here so i'm going to yes. ask you first of all have, have you ever done it before you're going to answer i'm going to answer i have done a catalog before and i've done things online with content before and i've done events with content so in some got ways it. yes but a magazine specifically no got it so based on your experience is this an easy thing to do or is it going to take a good bit of effort to figure it out that is a great question. I would, I'd put it right in the middle of somewhere between easy and hard. So now, I'd say it's moment a five on a ten. It's easy. So the moment someone starts to qualify, what I know is it's not low-hanging fruit. Now, okay. the moment they qualify, the moment you start seeing this wiggle, yep. I know from having done this with thousands of people, it's not low-hanging, which is fine. Now, yeah. here's the next question. If it works, is the payoff to you huge? Uh, I would say that is a yes. Got it. So you have a home run that probably isn't low hanging. So the question now becomes, is it worthwhile? Well, if you've got something else that would have an equal or greater payoff, that's easier or more likely to work, easier to do, I, then you get to make a different choice, right? Mm. But if you look at all the other opportunities that you have and the payoff is less, even if they're easy or not, I, I mean, I can do things that are easy that has a small payoff. I, why would I wa waste my time? So sure. it might still be worthwhile. Now I, I say, okay, if we're going to do this, what's sweet spot it? What are all the ways that you could launch this magazine? And you might say things like, for example, 
every guest that comes on that has an e-list, like David, you have a hundred thousand people who, who read your weekly e-letter, you know, can you mail for me? And, and you can use the relationships that you already have. Is that easy to do? Yeah, it's low hanging fruit. If you did that with the hundred guests you have per year, would that be a big deal? If you got even 20, 30% to say yes, that'd be a home run. So now I can go back through and find the best sweet spot to make the launch of your magazine mm. be the most successful launch it could be. And probably intuition would say that your greatest leverage point are all the guests that you bring on here because each of us come with you know 50 to 50,000 to maybe a quarter of a million or a million followers of some sort. Sure. If you don't leverage us, that would be a crime. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, and, and I think it also then begs the question of, of how one defines payoff right? In terms of the benefits sure. of doing something. And there are, of course, the financial benefits. For me, at this moment, that's not, that's not the main driver. Yeah. You know, it's really what, what puts fire in, in my soul. What do I really enjoy doing? And what can provide the most credibility, authority, in terms of this particular space, right? How do I put myself into that conversation? Is there a faster, easier, more efficient, you know, effective way of putting myself in that conversation? That to me is the payoff, right? So, so, so to that end, so I would think from client to client, you would have to get then the the clarity around what they're using a Dr. Phil thing, right? What what their currency really is. Sure. And I would, if I were coaching you, I, I, what I would make clear is that there's a, a business, um, there's a business case for this or not. And then there's a personal part. And, and if I look at the business side of it is we can look at that objectively and say, is this the right opportunity? Because here's the thing. What's the difference between somebody gets stuck at a half a million dollar a year or $2 million a year company and someone who breaks through to a 10, 20, 30, 40 plus million dollar company. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest difference is there's two things. Number one, controlitis of the owner, but we can talk about that later. But number two, the smaller company tends to go after too many different opportunities. Mm. Whereas the company that breaks through that level, what they do is they go after a few opportunities, but they go after it with all their resources. They put all their resources behind a much smaller portfolio of, of, of initiatives, opportunities, et cetera, markets. And so for you, I would ask you is if for the business, what's decide if this is really the right thing. And then we can ask the question for you personally, and, and then you as the owner are going to make a right choice mm-hmm. for you. And so there are, like, for example, the freedom formula. For me, it was a work of love. I wrote the book. It took me probably a 1,000 hours of actual writing time. I'll tell you, scale the book I wrote right before there with the, of my friend Jeff, who was one of the co-founders of uh, Priceline.com. I could have just worked to promote scale and probably would have been better for the business to take those 1,000 hours and invest them in other places for the business. Sure. But I felt there was a book in me that I really wanted to write. There was parts about, you know, how do you leverage your time? How do you grow your team? How do you create a culture? How do you, there, there's things that I wanted to do from a personal side. Great move from the business case. I would have been better served as a business to focus on the other book and promote and reinvest that thousand hours somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I just have to make that decision knowing what it is that I'm actually paying in terms of opportunity cost. Yeah. Yeah, an opportunity cost is real, sure. I was going to say one of the things he may or may not know, David, that is, is you also have a lot of other things going on that are specific for this ecosystem. He has a huge event. He has training programs for podcasters. So it, th- this could be, you know, an umbrella. Or, Perfect. You know, like a comet that's pulling something else. So it's not just it's not sitting vacuum, on, just, yeah, yeah. on its own. Yeah, so there's a real payoff for it. The, the, the other side of it, there's a real strategic reason for doing it, which is fantastic. And I think that's a really fair point, Richie, that you, you bring up about that. Yeah. And, and to that end, though, I will say that your, you know, your three steps uh, in terms of um, the startup being sort of phase one here and then owner reliant being phase two and then uh, systems reliant being phase three in terms of the just that, that sort of entrepreneurial journey, if you will, that you help folks traverse is really interesting because um, I, I do think that for a, a big chunk of my entrepreneurial career, whether it was owning a nightclub or doing real estate development or liquor.com or, you know, whatever, you know, all those things, 
over the years, it, it was really hard for me to get out at any point of, of phase two. I think, I think I've taken it to phase two with most of the businesses. I don't know that I've ever really gotten to phase three of having total, um, uh, total uh, freedom. I, I mean, I know you talk about control, but I don't think it's control of actually being involved with the day-to-day, just total control of, of your life, so to speak, that then corresponds or correlates to time freedom and, and so on. Can, so can you just briefly take us through those three Yeah, so phases? there's three levels yeah. to a business, right? So you got level one, which is a startup. You've got no control, no freedom. You, you don't even know if the business is going to work. You have level two, which is a, a business that works, but it works because the owner is primarily there driving the business, pushing it forward, keeping an eye on everything. No owner there, business is going to fail very quickly. Yeah. A level three business is a systems dependent with a strong management team in place, culture-driven company. And this is a point in time where the company, the owner might add, she might add tremendous value, but she's not a requirement to be there. And, and I'll give a quick example. So you mentioned before you've gotten this middle stage business, this business that works, but when you're there driving it, whether it be a, a, you know, an online website, you know, liquor.com or a nightclub. At some point though, if I can start to have other people who are managing and leading who are building out the systems infrastructure so that people are following things that I don't have to check on everything, but they and the business have the internal controls to make sure things are going well. And a culture that says we're going to be doing these things of building systems, growing our team, and making the default behaviors the right behaviors, I can now have a business. And I'll give an example. We work with a a particular company. It's a web hosting company. Um, When we first started working with them, they were probably $1.5 million a year in revenue. and the owner was working 16 hours, seven, seven days a week. And it worked, but he was in charge of operations, customer support, marketing, sales, mm-hmm. finance. He mm-hmm. literally was in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. So fast forward nine years, no longer in charge of marketing, no longer in charge of sales. He's got someone who runs operations, someone who runs technical support. And the only thing he's really responsible for is double checking on the accounting side. So his company has now grown probably about 800% in terms of sales. But here's the cool thing. Not only has he grown revenue by 8x, but the multiple he could sell that company for would go from once upon a time, he would be lucky to sell it for two or three times profit. Now he could probably sell it for seven to 12 times profit. So not only is he making probably 10 times more profit, but from a valuation standpoint, that company might be 60, 70 times more valuable than where it was way back when, because the fact that it's owner independent makes the business more attractive to other people. Plus it allows the company to scale. The thing that stops people stuck is they don't have the attention span to be able to do all these things because everything keeps coming back to them. So I need other leaders in the business so I get the best of their attention. And now I can spread with their attention. Their attentional units allow me to scale better and faster. And I, and I do think, and Richie, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, I was reading uh, your information, and this reminds me of the mentor that you had with the index card. Sure. So you said, I don't know, what do you think we should do? So eventually, I, that's mm. the training. You're slowly p- asking this question of your you're management empowering and empowering those people yeah. to take over. So you're not kind of a combination of not caught up in ego and passing the torch. Yeah. I mean, the thing that traps most of us is control. You know, the the inflammation of this control gland that we have. And I I talk about it as one of five chains that keep people from, you know, progressing to the next level in their company. And and so my mentor, she said to me, she said, write it on an index card. When people ask you the question of what they want, what you want them to do or to solve a problem, just say, I don't know. What do you think I should do? And on the flip side, write the next question, which is, if I weren't here, what would you do? Mm. If it was just up to you, what would you do? You know, depending on the person, half the time they'll get a good answer to maybe eight or nine times out of 10, they'll give a good answer. If they give a good answer, you say, wonderful, do it. Yeah. And over time they stop coming. And when they don't come with a good answer, sure, I can still coach them. I don't know. What do you think we should do? And they say, we should, and they say a horrible idea. Well, tell me why you think that. Have you considered this? Mm -hmm. Hmm. If you couldn't do that, what would you do then? By taking a little bit of extra effort to wean them off of me, plus to grow my muscles to let go. I, I, I don't think it's my staff that's the problem. I, I think if I've learned anything in growing companies, it's I'm the problem, not my staff. 
And generally speaking, when I was a control person, I would hire weaker hires and then I would try to create a dependency because I liked having the right answer. Mm-hmm. I liked being needed and I've gotten over that. I don't want to be needed. I don't want to even have the right answer. I want to hire people who are smarter, better, faster, stronger than I am and support them and take things out of their way so that they don't feel constrained by stupid red tape. So, and, and here's where I think where it gets a lot of, tr- it just gets so tricky for a lot of companies especially those in, in, that, in that stage one, maybe even stage two, is cash flow is still fairly precarious, right? From the standpoint of, you know, we don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars sitting around, whatever, so we can just go out sure. and hire this rock star team to take over and do this, that, and the other. I'm doing it because the revenue uh, dictates that I do as much as I can here. I just can't go out and like, so how do you help people kind of traverse that canyon, if you will, of not of needing to let go of a number of things, but yet not being able to necessarily afford hiring the talent that is required to do the things in order to then get to stage three? So it's a great question. It's, it's this paradox. It seems like this dilemma. It's going to be either or, and it's not. It's not a light switch. Think of it as like dimmer, a, a thing that becomes better and better. So for example, let's say it's just me with two people who work for me. If I can still get more from those two people by giving them some autonomy where appropriate. And, and so for example, one of the things we talk about in the Freedom Formula in the second half is about how to coach your team. And so one question I always ask is, let's say I'm about to hand off something to Richie and I say, okay, before I hand this task to Richie, I ask on a scale of one to 10, how capable is he in this task? How experienced is he in this task? If he's a two or three, I manage him very different than if he's a seven, eight, nine, or a 10. If he's a two or three, I'm probably gonna say, Hey, Richie, come with me. I'm going to show you me doing it. If he's a four or five and the stakes are low, Hey, Richie, you try it and let's see how it goes. If he's a four out of five, but the stakes are high. Hey, Richie, you do a draft, bring it to me, and let's go through it together. Mm. If he's an eight, though, and I do that, he's going to become pissed off at me thinking I'm micromanaging him. So no matter what it is, I, I can have someone who's $15 an hour, and I can at least get more for them by giving them some autonomy to make some of the decisions along the way that they're capable of where the, where the, where the risks are low. For example, you know, some of us have assistants that make our travel arrangements. Well, is it really going to be horrible if your assistant doesn't do the perfect travel plan? Can you give her a little bit of leeway and use some learning experiences? And they're knowing that probably once upon a time, she's going to put you in the middle of a, a, of a row, even when you don't want to be, right? But if I micromanage all of it, she's going to show no initiative because she's scared of that. But if I can show her that it's okay to make a mistake when the stakes are low, and I can give her some of that span of control, what happens is it frees me up. It gives me a couple hours a week back. And from that seed, I can grow that to become more. And from a capital perspective, then how how do you recommend that people do? Do they cut back their salary, their own personal income? You don't have to. You don't cut back at all. Let's think about this for a moment. So, one of the distinctions we make is we call it the time value matrix. It's chapter two if someone wants to read it in the Freedom Formula. But basically, most people think of this Pareto's principle, but they don't take it to its most productive extreme. They say, okay. You know, 80% of what I do is this low-value, D-level junk. It gives me just 20% of my result. But 20%, we'll call it C time, gives me 80% of the value. Well, let's apply that again. If 20% gives me 80% of the return, then 20% of the 20% gives me 80% of the 80%, which means 4% in. This this B time, this 4% sweet spot gives me 64% of the output. I'll do the math for them. And I do it one more time. If I take... 20% 20% of the 20% of the 20% to give me 80% of the 80% of the 80% it works out to be 1% gives me half the result. So here's the thing. So what does Most that look what, like? Just so I'm clear. All right. So let's, let's get into it here. So I'll give an example. Um, imagine you were an attorney and you worked in a law firm, right? So you think, okay, I have non-billable and billable time. Billable time I charge 400 bucks an hour for. Non-billable, it's, just, it's, it's even less, right? I would say that, that that's a useful distinction, but we need to take it more. There's things that you do that are more valuable than billable work. For example, one of the law firms we coach, the owner of the, the, the law firm, who actually I'll be speaking with tomorrow, um, one of the things we coach him was, well, let's look at your billing rates. Let's look at your collections practices. Let's look at the systems for how you staff down work. And we probably spent over the course of two years, maybe 30 hours of his time doing these higher value work. He makes close to 
three quarters of a million dollar more in profit. And his billable hours went from 75 to 70 per week. He still works way too much if you ask me, but he likes it. Mm -hmm. So the difference is, is that if I link, think of like an assistant, I'm doing stuff right now that if I were to take five or 10 hours of my time back and reinvest them in better uses in my business to make another sale, to do a better marketing plan, to work with a client who's a revenue generating client versus this low value junk, this D activities, I'll instantly not only make enough to pay for the assistant, but to more than get a return on that. And I see that time and time again. And, and so we're afraid to hire staff, but most staff that you hire early on should be people that you see a return on them within 90 days or less. It, it's not that you're taking a risk of, oh gosh, I'm taking less. No, you might be taking less for 30, 60, or 90 days. But if you can reinvest even a portion of the time they help you to save in higher value stuff, you should see the immediate return on that within 90 days. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's really, really good. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me ask you this, and then Richie, I'll give, give you the opportunity here to ask another question, and then I'm probably going to be pretty close to, to running out of time here. So uh, you really seem to have a lot of, uh, I mean, life, business, I mean, family, it just it really seems to be all pretty dialed in for you at this point. Now, what? Um, <laughs> Not at home. Well, yeah, my kids run ragged around me. My gosh, this morning, oh my gosh, I went to my kids through a little fit. At work, this is like my island. Everything seems to work here at work the right way. Even when things don't work, you know, people, you know, are respectful in that. My kids, like every kid everywhere else. So, so at home, it's a mess. At work, it's fairly clean and straightforward. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. Yeah, well, that makes you human. So, so to, to that <laughs> end then, David, I mean, what, what, what still keeps you up at night? What still scares you? Oh, I mean, the business stuff doesn't scare me. I, if I didn't have the business, I, I can live without that. It's the stuff, you know. It, something would happen in my, you know, with my kids or my wife. That's what matters. This yeah. stuff, this stuff is fun, and I love the impact I get to have. I love the freedom it gives. But what matters is my family. You know, their health is probably the biggest thing. That if I, if something does keep me up, and not a lot does, but that would be the concern. You know, a car accident. My wife's coming home from skiing today. From we live in Wyoming and a place called Jackson, and they went skiing today. Mm. You know, if my wife comes home, the thing that scares me if she's not home on time is gosh, did she slide off the road? Are my kids, are she okay? That, that's what worries me, not, not the business stuff. Yeah, definitely about prioritizing what matters most. And with the Freedom Formula, the new book, it's, uh, it is about how to succeed in business without sacrificing your family, health, or life. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's a book that's definitely needed. We'll, uh, we'll definitely check that out. Uh, Rich, any uh, final questions here for our friend Dave? Yeah, so I'll pause buying the book here for a second, but I'll get it, I'll get back to that after the show. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> the um, I want to go back to when you were talking about hiring in the beginning when Steve was asking those questions, and it sounded like you had a little bit of a distinction between um, how far they are along in their skill set and then what their mindset is like. Sure. So, say in this early stage in the startup, when you know we have these opportunities now with the internet and so many things that can be automated to Steve's point earlier, or, sure. you know, get a lot faster to more people for a lot less money. Do you, do you recommend, um, I'm sure I'm going to learn it when I read the book, but do you recommend more finding those high level things that you can do and just outsource almost more like a contractor in the beginning than actually yeah. bringing someone on or great question. Yeah. So what, what I would say is that, that when you piecemeal out your life, what'll happen is technically you'll free yourself up, but you're still responsible for playing the gap catcher and you're still responsible for checking on all this work. That's a good starting point, but fairly quickly, you want all of somebody's attention helping in your business. Now, you might not be able to afford a six-figure managerial level hire. Maybe all you can afford is a $32,000 a year um, uh, office manager for the starting point. Take what you can get and start there. But if all I do is just piecemeal out, uh, what happens is, is it saves me some time, but it's brittle and there's complexity, all of which drains my attentional load. And, and, and so I have to be careful of that. I I can't just do that. I've got to go beyond that over time. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So other than uh, definitely encouraging folks to go to freedomtoolkit.com to, to grab that matrix and, you know, the, the exercise that you run people through there, 
and of course, encouraging folks to go and, and grab the Freedom Formula. What else should folks do if they want to connect with you? Yeah, I mean, they can do two things, right? It, one of the books, Freedom Freedom Formula, or if they're already building a company and they're more wanting the nuts and bolts of company scaling, Scale was a great book that I wrote with uh, my friend Jeff. Go to MauiMastermind.com if you're really serious and you want somebody else to help do this with you as a coach, not for you, but with you at MauiMastermind.com. They can learn more about that, and that would be an appropriate choice for people who have already have ongoing businesses. We don't work with startups anymore. Mm-hmm. These would be for people who have companies typically in the one to 10 million, one to $20 million revenue range. Awesome. All right, David, we're going to let you jump here, man. And, uh, Richie you now wrap up, but, uh, happy new year to you and wishing you the best, not only for, of course, 2020, but for the entire decade and, uh, for decades to come after that and happy pre happy 50th for you when you, when you cross the, I really appreciate it. It's a blast, and when you do your when you do your magazine, let me know. I, I'm really interested, actually, in becoming a subscriber. I'm interested in that. So, hey, thank pod, you very much. Podcastmagazine.com. You can hit it right now. So we'll, that's uh, my next visit. Then. There we go. All right, my friend. We'll talk to you. Thanks, Dave. Richie Richman, uh, as always, you know it's uh, it's a pleasure to be able to sit down with somebody who helps so many different businesses start and scale, and uh, in some cases exit. Uh, really unique perspectives, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've had a lot of different personality on the show and it's he seems very grounded very grounded right very grounded and i liked how real he was too about the family too like no matter how big we are in the world you come home you're still dad yeah yeah <laughs> did did mom make it home safe i mean god right so yeah. and and i will say it's interesting and i didn't i didn't want to press this but it kind of begs the question too of when you look at some of the folks who have done really well especially over the last you know 20 30 years or so i mean like really really well especially in this real estate realm and and some of these teaching type arenas, you know, it's one of the reasons why there's been a lot of this flack about, you know, there's a lot of coaches out there who coach coaches to coach coaches to learn how to coach coaches to get clients and, you know, like this, that, and the whole thing. Right. And so you look at what he's done. I can coach you on that. You can coach me on that. Thank you. You know, (laughs) but you look at what he's done in the real estate space. Then you go back to his original company. They probably made more money teaching people how to do real estate than actually the money that they made in real estate themselves. So this is nothing new. All those infomercials, mm-hmm. the guys that have so, so the Carlton sheets and the whole, yeah. right. And, and I guess it just, I know a but lot they still of, knew how to sell real estate. Exactly. And I think a lot of our listeners get caught up in that they have to reach a certain level before they can start teaching what it is that works. I mean, even if you've built one business, you could still, teach someone how to you could teach thousands of people how to build a business even if you've just built one mm-hmm. right so what's your what's your phrase the fourth grader and the fifth grader oh to a second grader a fifth grader is a god yeah yeah you just got to be farther along in the path than they are yeah all right my friends well we really appreciate you hanging out with us here on this first episode of 2020 here on Beyond Eight Figures. Lots of great guests coming up. Super excited. Uh, I mean, we got Dean Graziosi. And I mean, just like on and on. We've already got a bunch of really, really interesting people lined up for you. So we will be bringing those folks to you and many, many, many more really soon. If you haven't left a uh, review for us, please do so. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And we'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody. <laughs>